chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. And the Word of God reads, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the Word of God. Um, and now I'll invite Pastor Matt to deliver the Word. Maybe we can welcome him again with a warm round of applause. All right. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Hi friends, um, it's a great honor and a privilege to be able to be able to share God's word with you like this in person. Um, this is my first time preaching after lockdown. Very nervous. Um, I feel like a fish out of water. Friends, um, I think it's a normal thing for a good church like this church to look at the Bible in an expository way, which means going through the books of the Bible in a systematic and an orderly fashion. Um, and I'm sure what you're used to is what we call expository sermons most Sundays. Um, and that's what a lot of good churches do. They take a portion of Scripture and they flesh it out. They read it. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? Um, and there's a system to how they do that. But uh, that's not what we're going to do today and for the next two weeks. Um, so if a topical sermon or a topical sermon series is something that maybe you're not used to, I apologize in advance. They might seem a little bit lectury and a bit confusing, um, and I'll do my best to preach as clearly as I can. But please be praying as you listen that God would use um, even a, a very foolish mouthpiece like me to be able to somehow edify and bless your church and what you guys are on about. Uh, friends, if you are uh, a note-taking person, you're going to find these next three Sundays pretty helpful. These three sermons, I have to be honest with you, they're a bit more technical in nature. Um, and listening, again, it might feel less like a sermon, but more like a lecture. But I hope that by the end of these three Sundays, you'll be able to put it together and kind of see what this whole thing was about and be uh, benefited by that. Friends, I'm going to pray. Please join me in prayer. Yeah, loving Father, what an absolute privilege it is to be able to join with your people today for worship because of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have not left us um, without word and that you have not left us without guidance, but we thank you that you have given to us your word, the Bible, and we thank you that in your great kindness that you have caused the Bible to be um, accessible for us. Father, we thank you that we know how to read. We thank you, Lord, that we have the Bible in our language. And Father, we pray that as we think about what the Bible is, um, that you might so fill us with your spirit, that you would help us to 
uh, know what you want us to know about your word, and we pray that you would help us to um, align our lives and our understanding of your word with your will, and we pray that you will do that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, uh, some years ago, I remember reading in the papers that the former Labour Prime Minister, Paul Keating, was suggesting that the present government at the time was actually failing to present Australia with a big picture, with an overarching framework in what is called a meta-narrative. So his complaint was that right now the leadership is not giving us clear vision. Everything he said is piecemeal, piece by piece. It's a little bit like being given a jigsaw puzzle without the box. You've just been given all the pieces in a plastic bag. You've got to figure it out. Friends, the question, I think, is not so much as whether Paul Keating is right, because he's right. The government should have a vision and a big picture for their people. But I wonder if Paul Keating actually has the big picture himself. And I wonder if the government would listen to him if he suggested what he thinks is the big picture. Would they buy it? Now, I mentioned this because I'm fully convinced and I'm fully persuaded that the Bible presents us with a big picture, with an overarching framework, and with a meta-narrative. That is absolutely a fact of Christianity. The Bible dares to say that time and space all fit into the purposes of God, that He made it, that we turned our backs on Him, that He's calling a people back to Himself through Christ, and that one day He will redeem everything that is His. That's the truth. That's the Bible's truth. That is a brilliant framework, I think. It's a very plain and I think a very obvious framework as we read the Bible cover to cover. Friends, the difficulty is it's unpopular. It's unwanted. And that means that we, even we Christians, can start to doubt whether it's the right one. Unfortunately, when we are unsuccessful and the church is unsuccessful, um, and to be honest, in a sense, as a church, will always be unsuccessful, measured by worldly standards. The danger is that we people in the church will slowly begin to lose our conviction. And this is really uh, a, a close to my heart because I serve in a denomination that has drifted in this way, in a liberal way or a progressive way, where as the generations have gone by, they get weak on the Bible and they become a bit more worldly and to try and make sense of the word through the lens of the current culture. I was at a Christian conference a while ago, and I remember one of the speakers at this conference, he was a very able American scholar, and he was giving to all the attendees, and he was giving to all the listeners huge confidence in the scriptures by doing a little bit of demolition of the secular counseling movement. And the speaker, he showed, quite conclusively, I think, um, how the current secular counseling movement how it fails to reach into the depth of a real person and actually will resort often, and perhaps quite rightly, to just medication. And then he did a constructive job of showing how the gospel, how the Word of God, the Bible, handled by the ordinary Christian and brought in the power of the Holy Spirit to other ordinary people is actually a profoundly life-changing thing. And I think that at that conference, all the attendees, I think we recovered a bit more confidence in the face of the ministry of the Bible. What I would like to do for these next three Sundays is to renew our confidence in the Scriptures, to renew our confidence in what we have as our Bible, Old and New Testaments, what we call God's Holy Word. My hope is that we will renew our confidence so that, first of all, we understand our privileges, 
as Bible people, and we appreciate what God has given us, and also in such a way that we might actually defend our position and maybe even advance our position as Bible-believing Christians in this modern day and age. And we need to do this in a world that is actually, frankly, looking at the scriptures that we are pleased with, that we are rejoicing in, that we are reading, that we're trusting in and believing in, and the world will say to us that those scriptures are optional at best, dangerous at worst, perhaps they're unlikely what's written in there, and for many people, they're just plainly incorrect, irrelevant, or evil. And so, what I'd like to do for these next three Sundays is to look at three things with you. Under the big topic of biblical confidence, I want to look at three things with you. Firstly, the inspiration of Scripture. That's today, the inspiration of Scripture. What does it mean that we talk about the Bible being inspired? Secondly, the inerrancy of Scripture. What does it mean that the Bible is without error? The inerrancy of Scripture. And the third Sunday, I want to talk about the authority of Scripture. So three things, inspiration of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture. It's kind of messed up because this is actually one really large sermon that I realized was like three hours. So we've got to break it up into like smaller chunks. But today we're going to be thinking about the first point, the inspiration of Scripture. The question is, why is the Bible the unique book that it is? Why is this different from the Quran? Why is it different from Lord of the Rings? Why is this book the unique book in the world that it is? That's today, inspiration of Scripture. Next week, inerrancy of Scripture, we're asking questions like, are there actually mistakes in the Bible? Are there any factual mistakes? Mistakes with numbers, names, dates, things like that. Are we actually kidding ourselves as Christians? Are we wasting our time as a church? In the third week, we're going to think about the authority of Scripture. In other words, has God given to us all that we need? Has God given us all that we need in the Bible, or does the Bible actually just deal with little issues that belong in this building? But today we're going to think about the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, if you like structure, then there's two sections uh, under this inspiration of Scripture. I want to talk about this under two headings. Firstly, our need for Scripture, and secondly, God's provision for our need. Really simple. Firstly, our need for Scripture, and then God's provision for our need. Uh, Very simple, but I think very helpful and very profound. And then after that, I want to conclude with four brief points of application. So our need for Scripture, God's providence for our need, and then four points of application, what that means for you and me today as Christians. First of all, our need. Our need to understand or to get explanation from God is huge. It's absolutely critical. It's so important because you and I have such limitations. We're so limited. First of all, our eyes, physically, are very limited in their ability. The things that we see, the way that we comprehend information, the way that we see the world around us, we can see that the world is around us. We just can't see why it's around us. We can't see how it's come to be. We can't see who put it there around us. And so, even though the creation, as beautiful as it is, even though the creation is meant to and is a communication from God to us, we're told in places like Romans chapter 1 that God communicates through the creation and He shows us that He is powerful and creative and glorious and majestic. We just can't work out from looking at creation who He is. We can't figure out from looking at creation what He is doing or why He's doing that. And we don't really know, therefore, how to put all the pieces together. Uh, J.I. Packer, one of the greatest Bible scholars of our era, he says this, 
Creation says not a word about redeeming love. In other words, you could travel the whole world and you could see all the best places and all the worst places and you could never work out from all your travels that God is a father. You could never work out from all these beautiful sights that you see that God is a father and that he rescues and he redeems and he forgives. So we need what the great John Calvin calls Bible spectacles or spectacles that are the Bible or scripture lens, if you like. Someone needs to explain things to us. Otherwise, you and I are just in the film without a script, just groping around in the darkness, trying to figure out what life is all about. We're just wandering out, not knowing what our path is and not knowing where it's headed and where it all finishes. The interesting thing is, even if we could jump in a time machine and go back and watch biblical events with our eyes, we would still need to have them explained to us. So, if we could be there as Abraham leaves his home and goes off to the promised land, you and I might be asking, why has this guy left home? If we could see Moses taking hundreds of thousands of people through the wilderness, we might stop and ask, why is he doing this? Why not just go back to Egypt where you had a palace and food? And if we were to see a young David being anointed as king, we might look at that and say, why is this happening? Why is this young lad being chosen? What's all this about? And if we could see Jesus being nailed on the cross, we might still ask, why is this happening? Why is this person who can solve anything, this person who's blameless and perfect, why is he suddenly being killed? We need someone to explain to us. We need someone to interpret for us what has happened in history. And that's why God has given to us what is absolutely necessary and completely reasonable, which is his word, the scriptures, the Bible. We're also very limited and again, just to remind you, we're talking about our need. We're also very limited if we want to penetrate into the mind of God. Because to be honest, it's hard enough to figure out one another, isn't it? You can go meet someone at a cafe or a pub and just look at their face, and you couldn't figure out what this person is on about. Some of our faces, they give off the wrong message. Some of us have what people call an RBF, right? Arresting bored face. Um, and I'm one of those guys too. If you see me on the streets, I look angry, but I'm just ugly. That's why. But I promise you, I'm a good person if you get to know me. But I'm saying our faces don't give it all away. And sometimes we say things like, nobody understands me. And that's absolutely true. No one does understand us except God who made us. And sometimes we say, I don't know what it is with this person. Or I don't know what's going on with that person. Their face says one thing, but their life says another. How much more difficult, friends, is it to penetrate into the mind of an invisible God? when we can't even see his face? How much more difficult is it to penetrate into the mind of God who he actually can't sit at a cafe with and have a conversation with? He's invisible. And of course, this God is immeasurably more smarter than we are. The Bible says that God is actually so much smarter than us that the distance between his thinking and ours is the distance between heaven and earth. In other words, it's infinite. He is infinitely smarter than we are. He's a creator. We're the creature, the creation. There's a very large gap between how we think and how he thinks. And so we're never going to be able to penetrate into his mind. Friends, even when we die and go to glory and hang out physically with God, we're still not going to figure out what God is all about. 
It's impossible for us because we are still creatures. His creatures, nonetheless, but we are still creatures at best. So, all this to say, he must communicate to us. He must initiate. And that's very important. We don't approach God and say, show us something or teach us something. God, in his kindness, makes that first move, and he communicates with us. He initiates with humanity. Just as if I stand up here this morning, and if I stop talking, which gets a little bit boring after a while, I think, and you say to yourself, I don't know what's going on, it's awkward. Without the communication, without the verbalizing, nothing makes sense. God must communicate. He must speak to us if we are to understand him. And friends, praise God because he does. He speaks to us. Friends, and you may be interested to know that this particular argument that we're talking about right now, the need for Scripture has actually been criticized by many people who say, uh, for you history buffs, who say, oh, this is just an enlightenment argument. This is just something that people have made up because they need a crutch. This is just Christians who are basically wanting to rest their faith on some kind of pseudo-sophisticated argument that in the end we need God and therefore we've got a Bible. We need God, so let's make a Bible, give it some human-ordained authority, and problem solved. Humans have a need, let's make a Bible, that solves our need. But actually, when the Bible writers talk about why they've written the Bible, it's very clear that it isn't just to provide academic answers. It is academic answers, but it's so much more than just academic answers. So Luke will say at the beginning of his gospel, I've written this to you, the reader, so that you will know the facts and know the Savior, Jesus. And John will say in his first letter, 1 John, I've written this so that you will know that you have eternal life, so that you will rejoice, so that you will go beyond information and arrive at the point of joy and peace and rejoicing. Friends, we need to recognize, therefore, that the Scriptures are a very reasonable provision from God. They are totally reasonable. God has communicated to us in the most precise way that we know, which is words. That's the most precise way we can communicate words. And despite the fact that we're sending text messages and emojis and abbreviating everything, and despite the fact that we're sending short emails and we're DMing and tweeting and things like that, it still comes down to legible, intelligible words. And thanks be to God, because God has communicated to us in words. And thanks be to God, because He has given it to us because of His kindness and His redemptive plan. That's the first thing, friends, our need for Scripture. Secondly, how has God met our need? How has God done this? What is His provision for our need? Friends, the simple answer is, God has given to the world a very unique book. It's actually not a book. It's actually a library. It's a collection of many books, 66 books. One of the reasons that the collection of these books, the Bible, one of the reasons why the Bible is unique is because it's the only book in the history of the world which the Bible would call inspired. Okay, now you have to follow the logical argument. We're not talking now about inspiring. Like we're not talking about reading a good novel and being inspired, watching a great movie. It's, it's not like that. We're talking about a book that is inspired in a totally different way. Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will help you, apostles. He will help you to remember what I've said and done and he will help you to 
record it. That's what he said in John chapter 16. Jesus says that, so the Holy Spirit will enable you to write. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. I'm going to go home to glory and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will enable you to remember and to write down and to record things as Scripture. And then Peter says, one of the disciples in the passage that we just read together in 2 Peter 1, Peter says, no prophet in the Old Testament, no apostle in the New Testament ever sat down with a pen and paper and said, I'm going to write some Scripture today. No one did that. No, Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1 verse 21. And, and, and that's really the, the starting passage when we're thinking about the inspiration of Scripture. In the same way the wind on the harbor moves a sailboat, the Holy Spirit moved or prompted people to write, to record Scripture. So God did the driving, men did the writing. And it's not as though God used typewriters or computers to do the writing. He used people. He used people. And that's why when we read the Bible, the writings have different personalities, different personalities, different cultural backgrounds. But at the same time, it wasn't the men who sat down and said, you know what, I've got a great idea. I'm going to write something. No, no. God, in some remarkable way, moved them to write. He drove them to write. And that's why we talk about this thing as called verbal inspiration. That is what people call verbal plenary inspiration because it's verbalized and people recorded it. It isn't just that the writer said, I've got an idea about Jesus. I think I'm going to write something. It wasn't that God said, guys, I don't really care what you write. Just write something about the wedding at Cana and I'll bless it. No, no. God drove the words. He drove the letters of the words. So these guys wrote and God had control over every single thing they wrote. And that's why it's so important as Christians to hold to what's called inerrancy. There are no errors in the Bible. If there are errors in the Bible, we have to conclude God has errors. But God doesn't make mistakes because He's perfect. Therefore, the Bible that God has literally breathed out has to be perfect. Otherwise, our whole Christianity is just a big lie. Jesus, you might remember, was very interested in letters. Jesus was interested in us dotting the I's and dashing the T's. Jesus was interested in the precision of words, the letters of words of Scripture. If you remember, he says in Matthew 5 verse 18, he'll say, not a dot, not a stroke, not a letter is to be removed, said Jesus. Jesus really cared about this. Now, perhaps the most famous verse on inspiration of Scripture will be found in 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says, all Scripture, and this is what he used to say, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. But our translations have actually cleared these words, clarified them, because the word in the original Greek is, all Scripture is God breath. That's what it says. And so our new translations, and I'm thankful for this, have put, all Scripture is breathed out by God, as in it literally comes out from God, from inside of Him, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Friends, this is a crucial point that I want you, I hope, will grasp and remember. This is the point. When we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we don't necessarily mean that it thrills us or that it entertains us. It may, it may not. It may deeply humble us. It may bring us to joy. It may bring us to tears. There are times 
when I've read the Bible and I've immediately gone and changed my life. There was nothing fun about it, yet it was totally glorious. So when we talk about the Bible being inspired, we're not talking about it thrilling us. At my sister's wedding a few years ago, we had two men singing a song, and the couple was signing the registry, and these two guys were singing a song, and it was awesome. It was magnificent. It was like hair on the back kind of stuff, like goosebumps. It was so good. And I could imagine a number of people, well, actually all of us, we applauded them. And after the wedding ceremony, we'd come up to them and say, man, that was inspiring. Brothers, that was inspiring. But let me be clear, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible being inspired. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, listen very carefully to this, the question that we're asking is, where can we trace it back to? What's the origin of the Bible? What's the source? Where does it come from? That's the question we're asking when we're thinking about the inspiration of Scripture. And the word is literally much better. Read this. God expired the Bible. He spake, if you like King James Version. God expired the Bible. Just as my words this morning are being worked out in my mind and produced through my mouth, and in a sense, my breath and my words are working together. So the Bible are the thoughts of God expressed through His own mouth or His mouthpiece, that is, His writers, the Bible authors. And they're a combination of His Spirit and His truth coming together and put down on paper for us. And when we therefore pick up the Bible, we have to realize it's not like any other book in the world. This book that we hold every morning it's traceable to the mind of God. Think about that. What we're dealing with every Sunday at church and at small groups, this book is traceable to the mind of the Creator God. It goes back to Him directly. And so this is what I have to remember when I'm reading my Bible every morning. I'm not to ask myself the question, is the Bible fun? Because I won't read it if I try and answer that question. I shouldn't be asking the question, is the Bible popular? because I won't read it if I'm asking that question. I shouldn't be asking the question, does this thrill me when I read it? No, no. What I should be asking is where does this book come from? Who caused this book to be? That will cause me to read and change my life according to what it says. I should be asking who has spoken these words into existence? And the answer of that is, of course, the living God the God of the universe. Church, that doesn't mean that reading it will be easy. It doesn't mean that reading it will be fun. It doesn't mean that reading it will always be straightforward and logical and make sense. But it does mean that every single time we read it, and humbly we ask the author to help us and to teach us and to search us, it does mean that we are in a two-way communication with the God of creation. We're in a two-way communication with the God of the universe. Uh, Timothy Ward, Timothy Ward is a pastor in England, and he wrote an excellent book recently called Words of Life. Um, it's a highly recommended, Timothy Ward, Words of Life. And in that book, he says this. He says, God has invested himself in his words or has so identified himself with his words that whatever someone does to God's words, whether they obey or disobey, they do directly to God himself. Imagine after church today, imagine over lunch, I come to you and I say, hey, my watch has stopped. Can you please tell me the time? And you tell me, brother, it's 10 past 12. And then you watch me as I walk over to someone else 
and say, my watch has stopped. Can you tell me the time? You'd have to say to yourself at that point, didn't he like what I said? Didn't he get what I said? Didn't he trust what I said? And when we just move away from the Bible and look for another word or another inspiration or another event in our lives, we move away from the Bible and say, well, this is now what I'm going to pursue. It's as if we're saying to God, God, you haven't said anything. And therefore, as Christians, we need to be very careful with what we do with our Bibles. We can see it in a strange way uh, that the word inspired is at the same time helpful and also unhelpful. It's helpful if you mean it's God-breathed. It's unhelpful if it means that it's thrilling and exciting. And the fact of the matter is, there is just one set of words in the whole world which come from God Almighty, and that's the 66 books that are in the Bible. The 39 books of the Old Testament, which Jesus endorsed himself by reading them, by loving them, by teaching from them, by trusting them, by quoting them, and by obeying them, and the 27 New Testament books, which Jesus commissioned through his servants, his apostles. So, when you hold the Bible in your hand, you have to tell yourself, this is actually a very human book. It's written across 1,500 years. It's written in three different languages. It's written by more than 40 different authors, which means 40 different personalities. And I find that very encouraging, as John Dixon, um, he points out in one of his books, that that's an encouraging thing because it means we're not being held to ransom by one guy who's written a book who then turns up and says, here's my book. You must like it or leave it. You must trust it or you'll perish. No, that's too much of a blackmail. So it's so helpful for us to know that there's more than 40 personalities that write this book. The Bible comes to us as a miraculous work of 40 authors across 15 centuries, different countries, different languages, different cultures, coming from different upbringings. And amazingly, all of it points so clearly to Jesus as Lord and Savior so that the whole book of the Bible is like a dartboard with Jesus as the bullseye. And the early church, just for your interest, they didn't one day stamp the Bible with their approval. They didn't one day say, you know what, here is a book or a collection of manuscripts. We're going to stamp our approval. That would be wrong because that would be for the church to give the Bible the church's authority. And that's one of the biggest differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestants. Roman Catholicism trusts, if you go way back in history, that as the church, they approved and affirmed the Bible. Protestants saying, no, no, the word came first, his people came later. Same with creation. God's word came first, his people came later. Therefore, it's not people first and God's word later. It's God's word first, which birthed the church. But we see what the early church did in history was they gathered the documents that were circulating at the time, and there were lots of documents circulating at the time, and the early church gathered them, and they asked a series of questions. Number one, is there an apostle linked with this letter, linked with this document? That's important. It needs to have apostolic authority. Someone that walked with Jesus, someone that knew Jesus, someone that saw Jesus, someone that saw the resurrection, an apostle. That's important. Number two, does it actually correspond with what we have as the rest of the Bible? Or... Does it, in a weird way, strangely contradict some things? And that's why, for example, the Gospel of Thomas never made it into the canon. Because at some stage in the Gospel of Thomas, he says that women need to become men in order to become believers. And sisters, there's a challenge for you. If you want to be a true Christian, you have to become a man. Um, so that document got read and it got put to the side. Yes, it says some interesting things, but it's not fitting with the rest of the Scriptures. 
So the early church asked a number of questions. Number one, is there an apostle linked to this document? Number two, does it actually correspond with the rest of the Bible? And the third thing they asked was, the third thing they did was, instead of authenticating the Bible and saying, we like it, we don't like it, we like it, we don't like it, what they did was they acknowledged the Bible. What that means is they sat under the documents for a few centuries watching to see what kind of effect the documents would have on the people who read them. In other words, they were asking which documents caused people to believe and grow and love Jesus and live for Him. So instead of standing over the documents and deciding which ones were in and out, the early church, they sat under the documents and for many centuries, they watched to see which ones were actually changing lives. That is how this amazing book that we call the Bible has come to be and how we have it in our hands today. That is God's provision for our need. Now, by way of closing, let me finish with four brief reflections by way of application. What does this mean for me today in my life, preacher? Applications. The first is this. We should recognize how privileged we are. There are still lots of people in the world who don't have a Bible, who don't have the Bible in their language. And if they have to, or if they're genuine seekers, what they have to do is they have to find someone who's going to tell them the important things. And that's why we send missionaries. Friends, you might remember that the Lord Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. You and I, as Asian Australians, we have been given tremendous, tremendous resources, tremendous Bible resources. My guess is some of us have multiple Bibles at home, maybe in different translations even. Friends, we have been blessed ridiculously by God. Number one, we can read. God's taught us how to read. Number two, we have the Bible. We have money to buy a Bible in different translations. We have the resources actually to even learn Greek and Hebrew and read the Bible in original languages. Friends, to whom much is given, much is required. That's what our Lord Jesus said. We have to remind ourselves as recipients of grace that our God he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us the Bible. But he happens to have explained himself to us and explained his purposes to us in such a clear way, a measurable and a reasonable way. And so the Bible that we have is like God's phone calls to us. It's like his emails. It's like his text messages to us. I know a guy from my Bible college, and he was telling me that in the next couple of weeks, he's traveling the country, and what he's doing is just taking these little devices around to people in prisons across the country. And you got to see this device to believe it. It's kind of like a USB device, but it's not. It's powered by solar. It's a solar panel thing. And these are little solar-powered devices with a little speaker on it. Very cheap to make. Cheap speakers, solar-powered Bibles. And what it has is it has a recording of the whole Bible, audio form, in different languages. It reads out the Bible to you in whatever language you want. You've just got to press a few buttons. In addition... It's packed with sermons and other Bible teaching and lectures. It's amazing. But you don't need one of those. So please don't come to me asking if you can have one because you can't have one. I have one. You can't have one. Why? Because you've got a Bible and because we know how to read. Friends, the first point of application for us is this. We need to recognize how privileged we are. So tomorrow morning, when you take out your Bible to read it for your quiet time, you're not only asking the question, where does this come from? But you're saying, there are people in the world that would die for a Bible. 
And I have one. In fact, I have eight. Praise God that I have a Bible and that I can read it. Second, second point of application. As Christians and as a church, we should shoulder the responsibility of putting our heads where God is speaking. We as Christians should shoulder the responsibility of putting our heads where God is speaking. The late John Chapman, uh, maybe Australia's greatest ever evangelist, John Chapman said this once. He said, if the phone rings, don't put your head in the microwave. Which means, if God is speaking, put your head where He is speaking. And He's speaking in the Scriptures. And friends, I don't know how you've organized your Bible reading, uh, but I would urge you to put your head where God is speaking and make a time, preferably daily, preferably early rather than late, and read. Read it in a systemic way. Get a cup of your favorite tea or coffee, find a quiet place, and if possible, for some of us, that means we have to get up before other people and sit and read your Bible asking God to teach you things, asking God to comfort you, to teach you, to to shape you, to challenge you appropriately and to guide you to the new Jerusalem. Please don't tell me that you just don't have the time because that's dishonest. That's a lie. We do have the time. Please don't tell me what a certain brother at my church told me earlier this week. I'm just not a reader. That's dishonest. You are a reader. You read things that are important. What could be more important? We need to take great responsibility with our personal Bible study. Friends, let me say there is nothing, nothing more important to your spiritual health than your regular intake of God's Word. That's just a fact. There's nothing more important. You could have your spouse praying for you. You could have your pastor feeding you. You could have small groups. But apart from personal, deliberate, personal Bible study, nothing will feed your spiritual life like that. And if you don't know what to do or where to start, friends, there's a whole range of ideas that I or Pastor Dave will be very happy to share with you. Um, Just talk to us, just send him a text. And simply, I would say, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then pick up a Bible, something like the NIV or even the NLT, something like that, and start with the New Testament, the four Gospels. And just read maybe half a chapter each morning and just think about, what am I seeing here in this story? What does it tell me about Jesus? And maybe just write a few notes. Note down something which is of worth trusting or write down something which needs to be obeyed and then turn that into prayer. Turn that into prayer and ask God to help you grow in the knowledge of God and ask God to help you obey what He has told you in His Word and therefore, that is how we are slowly living out the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God. Or friends, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are a Christian, then I would urge you to get your hands on a simple Bible reading plan. A Bible reading plan is helpful because it helps us to get through the whole Bible and not just the parts that we like or the parts that are easy. Um, I know for for me, many years, um, the Gospels were like all ripped up and tattered because I read it so much. The the Epistles, I read a lot of that, but the Old Testament, fresh pages. I haven't touched it. Leviticus, don't worry about that. Numbers, never read Numbers. So, So I have an unbalanced Christianity now because I've read the Gospel of John like 20 times and I've read like... Leviticus once, you know, so it's, so it's not quite right. But friends, um, get a Bible reading plan, and if you're really hungry for the Lord, and if you want to challenge yourself, then I'll recommend you to get your hands on this. This is um, a devotional book called For the Love of God by D.A. Carson, For the Love of God, and this is like an expert mode of a video game. This has a reading plan, which will take you through the whole Bible in a year and the New Testament twice. Um, this is not for the faint-hearted. If you're really hungry for the Lord, 
this is what I urge you to do. This is the hardest Bible reading plan that I've done in my life, uh, but I was really benefited by it. Anyway, friends, four points by way of application. Firstly, we need to recognize how privileged we are. Secondly, we need to put our heads where God is speaking. Thirdly, all of us need input from the Bible in our lives. I spoke with a lady a few weeks ago who's serving the Lord in full-time work, um, full-time vocation, and she is absolutely depressed. She has lost all joy with life, and she has lost all joy with her faith. She says she's struggling to believe whether God is even real. She says, I go to church, and I read my Bible out of just sheer duty. I do it because I just have to. Some of you might know what that feels like. But the wonderful thing about this lady is that she's still trusting the Lord to speak a good word to her that will renew her, that will clarify things for her, that will reinvigorate her for doing her work with joy. She is, to be frank, in a desert. But she's still looking to scriptures in the desert. If you are experiencing spiritual depression, friends, the antidote is the Bible. Sometimes we are marked by duty and drudgery. And I would argue even then, even then, that is your lifeline. If you cut the Bible out of your life, you're cutting God out of your life. I know another man who's involved in full-time Christian ministry, and he's got a little girl. He's got a little daughter, and she's very anxious. She's oftentimes paralyzed by her anxiety, and recently she started harming herself. So, my friend, he's, he's terribly distressed, but as you can imagine, it's absolutely consuming him and his wife. He's looking after a very big and a needy congregation. He has so much to do, so many things to plan, so many things to think about, so many people to meet. And what I love and respect about this man is he's steadfastly looking to God in his word to give him the wisdom and the joy that he needs and the perseverance that he needs and the hope that he needs so he can keep doing things properly, the right way, loving his child, supporting his wife, raising his child, being there for his church. And Christian, you might be in that situation where something in your life is absolutely consuming you, ruining you, and perhaps you're not looking to the resources that God has given you. Maybe you're tempted to look elsewhere. For me, my temptation when I hit a dry period, which is 99% of my life, my great temptation is actually to numb myself or to distract myself. So I think it's a great idea. I feel spiritually dry and distant from God, so I'm going to watch like five movies back to back. I'm like that. It's terrible. The, the, the return is always glorious, but it's so sh embarrassing and shameful because I'm always trying to numb myself. Friends, I think if the Bible is inspired, we need this to help us out of all our dry periods in life as Christians. And if you're going through one of those, I would urge you, take up the Psalms. Read and absorb the comfort and the guidance of God. Friends, four things by way of application. Firstly, recognize our privilege we are. Secondly, put our heads where God is speaking. Thirdly, all of us, without a doubt, need input from God in our lives in the Bible. Fourthly, and finally, remember that this book is not our God. We don't worship a book. We don't worship pages. This book is a portrait of God. It's a portrait of Jesus. The Old Testament is the background. The Gospels are the face of Christ. And as we read the Bible, He, the living God, He meets with us. And it's almost as, just as John Stott says, it's almost as though He steps 
out of the painting and he comes to us and he puts his arms around us and brings us the word that we need. So church, I want to remind all of us today to value our Bibles, to use our Bibles, to receive truth from our Bibles and to do all of that in the service of knowing the person of Jesus Christ, the one who we walk with and the one who ultimately walks with us. Friends, let me end with a quote from one of my favorite Christian heroes of all time, Jan Hus. He was a pastor from Prague 600 years ago, and he was a Czech. And he is what church historians call a pre-reformer, someone who was fighting for the Reformation before the Reformation. He says this, Seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Teach the truth. Love the truth. Abide by the truth and defend the truth unto death. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have been so kind to us. Not only have you made us in your image, not only have you saved us from our sin, but you've given to us your word, the Bible. Father, we confess that sometimes we find your word boring. Sometimes we find it confusing or irrelevant. But Father, we pray that you would so fill us with your spirit, that you would so soften our hearts, that you would attune our minds to your will. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before your word each and every day. Father, we pray because of what you've done for us in the gospel that you would make us into men and women who are marked by passion and discipline. Father, we pray that you would help us to become men and women who build our lives and our families and our church on your word, the Bible. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our personal Bible reading. Father, for those of us who are struggling with that, we pray that you would revive our spiritual lives. Fill us with gratitude so that every time we open your word, that we'll be looking to you to speak to us. Mold us and make us more like Christ. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.